Bibles, please, to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Daniel, chapter 3. James Knox Polk was born near uh, Pineville, North Carolina, in 1795. He was elected governor of Tennessee in 1839 and president of the United States in 1844. And during Polk's four years of service, he died in 1849, the American flag was raised over the area, which now forms nine western states. And Texas became a member of the Union during his presidency. It is said of his accomplishments that of all American presidents, only George Washington had a stronger record of success in his office. On the bright side, the country acquired land at a rapid rate, and gold was discovered in California. Meanwhile, however, there were factories that employed small children, and immigrants suffered in poverty, and slavery continued throughout the South. And so his critics saw Polk as cold and withdrawn, and when he did not seek a second term, uh, not a lot of people in the nation shed a tear when he didn't do it. And Polk's wife was the former Sarah Childress. She became the first presidential wife to serve as her husband's secretary. And she was a strict Moravian, which means she banned dancing, card playing, and all alcoholic drinks from the White House. And there's just one other thing that really bothered her, and that is that her husband was five foot six inches tall. And he would often enter the room full of dignitaries, and nobody would notice that he entered the room. And that really perturbed his wife. And so it would go on for several minutes until uh, someone would say, hey, the president's here. And then they would all come over and, and, uh, and welcome him. And so in an effort to solve this problem of what she considered to be great disrespect, Sarah Polk requested the selection of a song to be played each time the president entered the room in order to announce his arrival. And someone chose what we now call, what, Hail to the Chief, right? It's composed by James Sanderson in 1828. So since the days of Polk, it has announced the presence of every president. Well, in our story tonight, there's going to be some music as well. And not necessarily announcing the presence of the king, but it has a very specific purpose in this music here. Nebuchadnezzar's musicians might have used Hail to the Chief had they been available. But nevertheless, there's going to be a variety of musical instruments made up a grand Chaldean orchestra, which called people to worship the idol of the great king of Babylon. And that's what we want to look at in our text tonight. What will we do when we're called to make a stand against idols of our heart or the idols of our culture? What will we do when it's our turn to face the music and make a decision? Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll ask him to bless our time in his word, and then we'll open up our text. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for, again, the incredible privilege I have, Lord, to open up your wonderful truth, Lord, to share with what you have in your text, Lord, what you've laid upon our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that we would receive that with open hearts and open mind, and that, Lord, you would give us clarity here tonight, and that we would apply it again in our life as we ask each time 
apply it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And so we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, before we begin, again, unpacking these uh, few verses here tonight, let me give you some background information that will kind of help us understand what's going on in this chapter, Daniel chapter 3. You're going to hear a lot about idols in this chapter. But let's define that specifically. What is an idol? An idol is anything that you put before God. That's what an idol is. Most people think of idols as pictures or statues or stone statues that you write, you know, that you light candles in front of or plastic statues in the front of some lawns. Uh, and they think of that as an idol. But an idol can be anything. It can be your car. It can be your hobby. It can be your house. It can be your wife. It can be your money. It can be your possessions or your children or, God forbid, your grandchildren or your spouse or movie stars or sports teams or social media or Internet fame or power or prestige at work. I mean, the list is endless. John Calvin said that our hearts are little idol factories, and that's what we do every day. We just crank out these new idols that we're going to worship. And if all of those idols were destroyed in our hearts tonight, we would have a whole new set of idols before we hit the door to go home tonight. That's how our hearts are. So turn with me, if you will. Keep your place in Daniel 3. I just want to show you and talk a little bit more about idols because that's really what this whole chapter is going to be about. And so we want to make sure that we're very clear on that. Turn to Romans chapter 1, would you? Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. It's a very familiar passage, I hope, to most of you here tonight. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. So let's look at that together, shall we? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which means what? That they know the truth, but they suppress the truth. So instead of knowing the truth in righteousness and living the truth in righteousness, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do they do that? Because that which is known about God is evident where? Within them. They already know. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. Translation, anybody that looks around in this world and thinks that that happened by chance, right, is lying to whom? To themselves, because God has already made it evident we cannot create something out of nothing. And there's just too much order and design. Matter of fact, the more advanced we get scientifically, technologically, the more we just keep reaffirming the intricate design of our creator, of what he has designed in his creation. Not the design of our creator, but the design of the creation of our creator. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but instead they did what? They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Which is why we 
do not trust our hearts. Our hearts are desperately wicked, right? Desperately wicked. Uh, 22, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. How did they do this? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That word, uh, image, is an important word. And uh, it's used really throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Either the Greek version of that same word or the Hebrew version of that. Selem is the Hebrew word. And uh, it can be a statue. It can be a graven image. It can be a molten image. It really is just a object of desire. That's what it is. So notice they exchanged the glory of God, right, of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So in other words, instead of worshiping God who has made it evident to them and laid it upon their, art, upon their hearts that there is God, there is a God, and there is a one true God who did create all of creation, who sustains the world by his power and his word. They, we exchange that for something different. How did God respond? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. For what reason? So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Now, this issue of idols is not a new subject, is it? It has been going around. If you've read your Old Testament at all, you know that that is true. It's the, it, the uh, idea of exchanging something for God and worshiping that. This is the thing about idols, my friends, is that they have to be fed constantly. They only grow bigger. They never shrink in size. And uh, we constantly create new ones all the time. And here's the most important part. Your idols demand worship. They demand your worship. So, right, they only get bigger. They have to be fed all the time. They only get bigger, and they demand worship. And there's an easy way to test your heart to see if you've got idols in your heart. Is something that you've put a high value on and a high priority on? Is it something that you have to feed all the time? In other words, feed it with your time or feed it with your money or feed it with your attention. It's distracting you from other things. Is that desire growing and growing in your life? Is it growing or shrinking in your life, this desire, this thing that you keep feeding, this thing that's taking up so much of your time, this thing you believe you have to have in place of God? And are you indeed worshiping this? Now, I'm not talking about worshiping it when you may just bow down on your knees and light a candle in front of it. I'm talking about worshiping it where it has become such a priority in your life that it is squeezing out your worship of the Lord. And when you really test your heart and you start looking at those things, you realize how easy it is for an idol to be formed in your heart and for us to all of a sudden start worshiping that thing and think that is a higher priority than what God has told us is a priority. Now, God 
views idols as ridiculous, as foolish on our part. As you can tell, even from the writing here uh, through the Holy Spirit, that Paul is writing in Romans, the foolishness of, of discarding the incorruptible God for corruptible things, things that will not be here, things that are not eternal, things that fade away, things that rust, things that you can't take with you into eternal life. So to that end, let's turn, if you will, to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. Isaiah, chapter 44. And let's uh, pick it up in about verse 9, shall we? Matter of fact, the heading in my Bible, Bible. Bible is the folly of idolatry, okay? The folly of idolatry. Those who fashion a graven image, verse 9, are, are all of them, what? Futile. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses, even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. And then he says this. The man who shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashion it with hammers and working it with his strong arm, he also gets hungry and his strength fails and he drinks the water and he becomes weary. Another shapes wood, and he extends a measuring line, and he outlines it with red chalk, and he works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself, and he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the, and the rain makes it grow, and then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them, and warms himself, and he also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it, and he makes it into a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire over this half. He eats meat, and he roasts a roast, and it is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire and also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Man forms the tools, creates the image, cuts down a tree, carves it into this beautiful image that he's going to worship in place of God. He takes half of that tree, and he bakes bread and warms himself by the fire, and the other half he worships. And Isaiah asks, since it was fashioned by man, since it was created by man, since it has no real value, it's just a thing that you created, that you decided that you would worship, 
How do you know you're not worshiping the wrong half of the wood that you cut in half? How do you not know you're worshiping a stump and the idol, the God that you think you're, you're warming yourself and baking bread over here? And so he challenges them and tries to show them the futility of these false idols. That anything that you put in the place of God, and specifically these things that are man-made, and these are all man-made. They're either made physically with our hands or they're made with our hearts. But uh, none of them have any value. They don't have any eternal value. And he's just showing the futility of it. Now, man has always struggled with idols, even from the beginning. And because of that, there's a constant conflict in the world between the worship of the one true God and the worship of the false gods that made, that, uh, made out of the imagination of the mind of man. So man has always set up these false gods, and the running conflict now has gone all through human history, the conflict between the worship of the true God and the worship of the false gods. How important of this was this to God? Well, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 1, then God said, he spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land to Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, what's the very first commandment that he gives? You shall have no other gods before me. In case you're not clear, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself what? An idol. Or a graven image. Same word. Or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the water or under the water. Basically, quit making things to replace me, is what God is saying. Verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to those who love me and do what? Keep my commandments. You see, idolatry is the most basic issue in terms of the life of man in which God is concerned. Because as soon as your heart falls away and starts worshiping something else, you are moving away from your one source, (laughs) your one source of life the one who created you, the one who sustained you, the one who gave you your soul, your eternal soul, as you're made in the image of God, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, and we turn our back on that and then create something else of our own imagination, of our own making, and we decide and justify that what we have created is better than what God has already provided which is why God is, uh, takes such a strong stance on idolatry. He's a jealous God for his glory, and rightfully so. He is God. There is none other, and he doesn't need to share his glory with anyone. Matter of fact, he will not. So now this is not just a problem for the unbeliever. Believe it or not, my friends, believers struggle with idolatry just like unbelievers do. Sad to say. 
And if we're not careful and we don't take our stand for God against the idols of our heart and the culture in which we live, and that's why it's so important to draw a line, to have a line of conviction, and determine in your minds and in your hearts that you will never descend below that line. In other words, I am going to stand for God no matter what the pressure is. I'm going to make a stand for God. I am not going to waver. It doesn't matter how. I don't care if people don't like me. I don't care if they mock me. I don't care if they don't want to be. I choose to stand for Christ. And if you don't settle that in your minds, you're going to struggle every time you face pressure to turn your back on God. It's easy to do if you don't settle that in your mind already. See, but that's not as easy as it seems when you're facing all these social pressures to comply and bow down to the idols of our culture that says you must talk a certain way and dress a certain way and watch certain shows and listen to certain music. You must have, you must be on social media. You must, you, uh, all of these social cultural things. And my friends, we're experts at justifying why it's okay for us to bow down and worship these cultural idols, but that doesn't make it right before the eyes of the Lord. We may get away with it with our friends. We may think we're fooling everybody else, but the Lord knows our hearts. And if we have not settled in our minds what we will do when we face the music and take our stand against the cultural idols of our time, we will falter every time, guaranteed. If you haven't settled in your mind who you stand for, you will fall every single time, guaranteed. So with that in mind, let's take a quick peek at the setting for our text in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the last time we heard from old King Nebuchadnezzar, he's really not old, but I'd like to call him that. Uh, I could call him foolish King Nebuchadnezzar. That might be more accurate. He was really impressed by the ability of Daniel's God to tell him his dream about the huge statue with the golden head. Remember, he was very, very impressed with that. So in verse uh, 38, in chapter 2, remember, he was even more impressed by the interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. That's you that God is talking about. And then the king in verse 47 said to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of gods. And the Lord of Kings. And then the king had promoted Daniel to be a ruler over the whole province of the whole province of Babylon, remember? And the head office being in the king's court in the city of Babylon, and Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They became administrators over the province of Babylon. We see that in chapter two, verses forty eight and forty nine. Just refreshing you quickly from where we left off. And that's where our story, this is, that's where the story about Daniel's friends picks up. It is many years later, and the king has apparently forgotten that wonderful confession that he said in verse 47, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings. He's been very successful, just to give you a little background here, and his, his empire is expanding, but not everything is going so smoothly. In fact, in the year 594, he had to suppress the rebellion in Babylon against him. And he also had to make a trip to the western province and collect tribute from his vassals to keep things calm. 
And he doesn't want his empire to break up. And he keeps remembering, I believe, he keeps remembering that this statue is going to crush. And so he's not focused on the stone that's going to crush the clay feet of his great statue. He's thinking, how can I stop my kingdom from falling apart? I think the fact that he is head, has a head of gold or he is the head of gold has gone to his head. He wants to be more than just a head of gold. He wants to be the whole statue of, God, of gold. He wants his empire to last forever. So let's look at verse 1, shall we? Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So this statue is 90 feet high and nine feet wide, 90 feet high, nine feet wide. And it's overlaid with gold. I don't think it's solid gold. I think it's overlaid with gold. Now, where do you think Nebuchadnezzar got that idea? Well, it sure reminds me of the image in his dream, except this one is completely covered with gold because he, Nebuchadnezzar, was the head of gold. Now, why does he move it to the plain of Dura? Well, it's very flat and very visible from yeah, so everybody can see this giant statue of him. The sun bouncing off the golden statue would shine a magnificent display of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king. Now, why is he doing this? He already has great power. He already has great prestige. He already has great wealth. What's driving this over-the-top golden statue of splendor and gaudiness? What is it that's driving that? And I think most scholars agree that this was designed to be something that would unite Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. I'll hold them together through the worship of a common worship. They will all worship the same thing. We won't have all of this uh, fighting and this rebellion. And so he's going to create this giant symbol of their worship of their king and their ruler. And the statue represented the great king Nebuchadnezzar as well as his gods. Nine times this chapter repeats that Nebuchadnezzar set up the golden statue, set up the golden statue. God wants to remind us that this is Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Nebuchadnezzar set this up. Nebuchadnezzar set this up. That The king set this up. This is the king's doing. And that's interesting because in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel told the king that the God of heaven had given him the kingdom. He said, God is the one who gave you this kingdom. But that it would re be replaced by a kingdom of silver and then bronze and then finally one of iron and feet of iron and clay. I believe the king's just not willing to wait for his kingdom to be toppled. So he sets up his own statue entirely of gold and certainly has no feet of clay. And as a side note, the, sinks, the king sets up his statue in the province of Babylon. Do you know where that is? That is in the province of Shinar is what it actually says. And the province of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was created. Same place. And remember what it said in Genesis 11:4: Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. I believe the same motivation that drove them in Genesis chapter 11 to make a name for themselves and to bypass God is exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing here as well. And he thinks this golden statue will 
serve him to unify his kingdom and make his name great. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So I forgot to tell you in your notes, the first one is the king's idol. The king's idol. Verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 is the king's worship. That's what we just read. The king's worship. So now, even beyond the unity of his empire, he wants, to, he wants his subjects' allegiance to him and to worship him. And to that end, he sends word for a giant worship ceremony of the king's idol. And all of those listed on the guest list are listed in descending order. So the satraps, or the princes, depending on your translation here, are the leaders of the provinces in the Babylonian Empire. They are like the senators, if you will. Okay, They're like the big cheeses. Then you have the prefects. Those are the military leaders. Then you have the governors, just like we have governors here, the civil leaders. So they're kind of the secondary layer. Then you have the counselors, who are the lawyers. You have treasurers, who are the accountants. You have judges, which are the minor judges. And then you work your way down to the magistrates, which are the police, if you will, police chiefs. And then finally, all the rulers, which are the county and small city officials. So that he's, he wants allegiance from everybody. He's got all the important people coming to his worship ceremony now. And he's planning on uniting them through the worship of him. What could go wrong? He wants everybody there. Total allegiance, total unity to the king. Then in verse 3, look again. He basically repeats the same thing as verse 2. Now, hopefully you read that in the same way I did and said, isn't that what I just read in verse 2? I mean, I know I'm getting older, but not that old. I just read that. John MacArthur writes, he reiterates that they were all big shots, but none of them had the courage to say no. All of the supposed leaders in the country All of them, none of them had the courage to say, I don't think I'm going to make it. Kids got a soccer game, whatever it's going to be. No, nobody's nobody's saying no. They showed up and spinelessly followed the lead of Nebuchadnezzar. All the big shots, all the great ones came, and they all had to be humiliated. And they all stood, it says at the end of verse 3, before the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then they responded as they were told. And if Nebuchadnezzar says, we all worship this idol, then we all worship this idol. After all, we've got to keep our jobs. Or probably more realistically, we've got to keep our heads. End quote. So Nebuchadnezzar was wise then. Notice he's going to use some instruments because he is he wants this to stir up they're the people's emotions, and he wants to make it easy for him to manipulate them and win them into submission. Music can do that. And throughout history, music and song have always played an important role in strengthening nationalism and motivating conquest and inspiring people. But here's what I want you to notice. All of this is meticulously planned. This is not like a, just a big get-together and then, hey, I'll tell you what, this is all planned to the guest list, to the function to the image, to the idol, 
to the worship itself. Everybody's set in position. Look at verse 4 through 7. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given. Notice this is not optional to worship the idol. O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. Now, who are the people, the nations, and the languages? That's just a common form of address. You actually could find it in other parts of the Bible to speak of a conglomerate of people. This is like all the people I just invited, if you will, or the congregation, he could have said. Notice again in verse 5, that at that moment, that means at the precise moment when the music plays, this is what you do. Not before, not afterwards. You will all bow in submission to the idol I have created. He wants absolute submission at the precise moment. At the moment you hear that music, you fall down, you worship this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Now again, it's apparent here now the king has a royal orchestra. I was thinking of Debbie in the, when I was uh, reading this part here, and I'm thinking, does this even sound like an orchestra? It doesn't even sound like an orchestra. But these are all instruments all fit together. Don't know. Uh, he has stringed instruments, wind instruments. There's a horn. We all know what that is. There's a pipe. That means a flute. Then you have a lyre, which is a harp. Then you have a trigon. Not sure what that is. And nobody else is either. I don't care what your commentary. Nobody knows what this is. Okay. Then there's a psaltery, which is like a harpsichord. It's like a, a harp with a, a wooden back to it. Remember, you used to play those in, uh, they still play those? Ding, ding. Okay. What's it called? Auto harp. Okay. Uh, well, it's biblical in nature. It's a psaltery here. And then you have the bagpipe, which we still have today. And when the music started, everybody was to instantly fall down and worship the golden image. And by the way, what happens if somebody doesn't do that, and that's what I was thinking, <laughs> verse 6 tells us, well, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Okay. Verse 7. Therefore, at the, that time, or at that precise moment, literally, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language did what? Fell down and worshipped the golden image, there's our word again, that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Right on cue, the music sounds, all of these dignitaries fall to their faces. They all bow down and worship the golden image of the king. I guess we know where they draw the line, don't we? They are all intimidated. And dare, may I say, not a single one of those folks had probably given a, a, a second of thought to drawing the line in the sand of their own convictions. Where do you stand? Here's what happens when you do not have a line in the sand of what you will stand for or whom you will stand for, no matter what the cost. And thus, as soon as they face the music of the idols of their culture, they bow down in compliance to that idol. It's very common today as well. 
You simply choose the path that will cause you the least grief and you do whatever you need to do to get by. I know God's word says this, but I believe I need this, whatever this thing is that you've put in place of God and his word. I must serve this for me to feel safe or to feel comfortable or to feel like I'm going to be okay. I know God says this, but I am worshiping this, whatever I've created as my safety. If you have not settled that in your mind, beloved, you will fall for this every single time, every single time. So these folks, afraid to lose their position, afraid to become a a human charcoal, afraid to lose their position, their status. On the face of onslaught of social pressure, they simply bow down and worship the cultural idol of that day. In this case, it was the it was the image of King Nebuchadnezzar, but quite honestly, it could be anything. They do whatever they have to do. But not everybody, as we see next week, not everybody does. Because lo and behold, even though a sea of humanity was bowing down and worship to the false idol, there were three who never bent a knee. They stood there. We'll hear more about their story next week. Here's what I'll guarantee you about those three before we get there. They had already settled in their mind who they worshipped. They had already settled in their mind what they would and would not do. No doubt about it. Now, here's what I want to leave you with tonight, and I want you to chew on this throughout the week in preparation for next week's lesson. I want you to see that every one of us needs to make a choice. And we need to settle in our mind very quickly. Am I going to worship the one true God, or am I going to worship the idol of my heart and the idols of my culture? Even as believers, we can be easily tempted to worship these idols of our heart. But this is the time tonight when we should be examining our hearts. What do you worship? Or who do you worship? Is there an idol in your life? What's an idol? Anything that you that replaces God. Anything you've put as a higher priority in your life than God. What have you placed before God? And if you say, and you're sitting here thinking, I don't have a single idol in my life, beloved, I would, I would encourage you to be honest with your heart. What have you put or where have you put God as a priority in your life? Is he your Sunday God? Is he your Sunday and Wednesday God? Is he your everyday God? Is he your every moment, God? And what are you going to do when it's inconvenient for you to take a stand for God? What are you going to do when you have to face the music of the onslaught of pressure? When somebody asks you about things like abortion or homosexuality or things that where God is very clear about, you need to settle that in your mind, not when you get asked long before that. Whom do you stand for? Draw that line in the sand. 
Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you have all kinds of idols, my friends. And you're living a life that is denying the very glory of God. And so I would ask you, won't you come to Jesus Christ? Surrender your life to him as your Savior. Confess him as your Lord. And then there are many of you here believers who have Christ as Lord of your life, and yet you find yourself going in the wrong direction towards idols of this world. This would be a great time for you to open your heart and confess to the Lord that you have some idols in your heart too that need to be smashed. Have you examined your heart? What is it? Is it possessions? Is it pride? Is it people? Is it relationships? Is it pleasure? Is it projects? Is it prominence? Is it education? Is it prestige, sex, money, hobbies, entertainments? My friend, there are idols everywhere. We crank them out in our hearts. But here's what I want to leave you with tonight. Only Christ and Christ alone is to be your king. And it is he and he alone that we bow down and worship. Amen? Amen. Let's...